Amen. Thank you, Lisa. Again, I invite you to take a copy of God's Word, this time in the New Testament, the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Book of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and we'll begin reading with verse 6. And while you're turning to that passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, if uh, we're in a uh, a series on stewardship, and if you are new here, if this is your first time uh, here this time of year, let me tell you, every January, I've been doing this for years, I preach on stewardship, and you need to know that. And the reason I preach on stewardship is very simple. It is a principle of Scripture that we are all to be good stewards. And so it has nothing to do with anything external. And so it has nothing to do with our finances. In fact, last year was the best year we've ever had. Uh, Last year, we surpassed our budget. Last year, we surpassed all our mission goals. Last year, uh, you gave generously uh, because of the tornadoes in in Mayfield. So thank you so much. So it has nothing to do with that. In fact, I've said it many times before. If someone gave to us $100 million, I would still preach on stewardship. And to prove it, please send $100 million. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with how we think and how we feel and how we act. This is what the Word of God says. Also, if you're new here, you need to understand this. I do not know what any person gives in this church. I do not look at anybody's financial records. And the reason is, I don't want to know. So every time I shake someone's hand, I will assume you're a tither. I, that, I just want to think that way. So this, is, this series is never personal. And also, this is more than money. Usually, when people hear stewardship, they think, oh, you're talking about money. You're talking about tithing. Yes, and much more. So next week, I'll be talking about time, time management, because that is part of stewardship. And it's more than just tithing. It's everything. So please understand, as we're talking about stewardship in this series, we are talking about everything we have, we give an account to God. With that in mind, let's look at this passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning with verse 6. Paul writes, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scatters abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. While they also, by prayer, on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Pray with me. Father, today we pray that as we look at this text, Father, as we examine this text, that, Father, you will use it to penetrate our hearts and minds, that, Father, we will be good stewards. And help us, Father, to understand what that means. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
One of the most popular commercials today is the Capital One commercial with Jennifer Garner and Samuel L. Jackson, who, by the way, I think could sell anything. The idea, if you've seen the commercial, I'm sure you have, the idea, you need something to protect your finances. And so they talk about that in the commercial, and then they always end with that tagline, what's in your wallet? The idea is you need to have something in your wallet to protect your finances. I think there's a better question than what's in your wallet. I think the question should be, who's in your wallet? In other words, who's the driving force of how you spend money? Who's making the financial decisions of finances in your life? Who is the driving force behind your spending or saving, whatever it may be? Now, you may be here today, you may be thinking, well, I'm, I'm the one. I, I make all those decisions, but you might not be. It might be your spouse. It might be your parents, even though they, because of the lessons they've taught you. It, it may be the bank. It may be credit card companies who are dictating how you spend money. It may be your children or grandchildren who are trying to maybe manipulate you to give them more money and more things. Or it may be you. But which you? Is it the controllable you or the uncontrollable you? Is it the disciplined you or the undisciplined you? Who? is in your wallet. Who is the force behind every decision you have when it comes to finances? And I can tell you how you can find out. If you want to know who's behind it, if you want to know who's in your wallet, all you have to do is look at how you spend your money, and that reveals your heart. I love what business guru uh, Peter Drucker once said. Peter Drucker said this, tell me what you value, and I might believe you. But show me your calendar and your bank statement, and I'll show you what you really value. That's true. You can tell me what you value. You can tell me who you value, but let me look at your financial statements, and let me look at your calendar, and I'll know who you value. I mean, you tell me you value your family, but you don't spend time with your family? There's a problem. You tell me you value your children, but you're never there for them? There's a problem. You tell me you love God, but you, know, you, don't, you neglect God weekly to come to church. You don't give to God. There's a problem. You look at how you spend money. You look at your calendar, and you will know what you value. If you, for example, if you spend all your money on hunting, you value hunting. If you spend all your money on, on golf, well, you value golf. If you spend all your money on, on clothes and shoes, well, technically, you value pride. If you spend all your money on traveling, well, you value traveling. I mean, the principle is simple. What you love determines how you spend your money. What you love determines how you spend your time. It is that simple. So what's in your wallet is not the question. The question is, who's in your wallet? Who's in your wallet in regards to your finances? And so as we're talking about finances this morning, as we're talking about stewardship, this, this whole series, I want you to understand, again, I'm going to remind you the four principles of stewardship. It's found throughout the Scripture, four principles that God wants us to understand about stewardship. The first principle is very simple. God owns it all. That's the first principle. That's what David was praying a few moments ago. God, you own it all in heaven and in earth. God owns everything. All I do is manage it. God owns everything. Everything I have belongs to God. God gives it to me so that I can manage it for His kingdom, for His glory. So God owns everything. Nothing I have belongs to me. Number two, 
God has the right to do whatever he wants with the possessions he's given to me. God has the right to do what he wants with the possessions he's given to me. That's logical. If God owns it, he has the right to give it to me or to take it away. I cannot be upset if God takes something away. I cannot be mad if God takes something because it belongs to him. I remember years ago, I I had to borrow someone's car for a week. And after a week, they came back and got it back. How dare they? No. It was their car. It belonged to them. I wasn't upset that they came back and got the car that they loaned me because it belonged to them. Well, God has the right to enter into my life and take away anything I have because it never belonged to me in the first place. I have no right to say no to God. So please understand, God has the right to enter your life and take away anything he's given you. Third, I will give an account to what he loans me. I will give an account to what he loans me. If you're a manager, you're going to give an account of something. Everything belongs to God. God has given me everything. Therefore, one day, I'm going to give an account to that. Every now and then, I'll I'll fly somewhere, and I rent a car. And then I come back, and and you know what they do when you bring the car back? They examine the car. They don't trust me. They don't, look at this face. You should trust this face. No, they're not going to trust me. They they go, go out, and they examine the car. Why? They want to see if I was accountable. I'm accountable to them. In the same way, the Bible says that one day you and I are going to give an account to everything God has given to us. Time, money, opportunity, testimony, everything. Fourth lesson, fourth principle. Since I'm going to give an account, then every decision I make is a spiritual decision. Since I'm going to give an account, every decision I make is a spiritual decision. You see, here's what we want to do. We want to put things in category. That's a spiritual decision. That's a financial decision. That's a vocational decision. That's a relational decision. It doesn't work that way. All our decisions are spiritual because we're going to give an account to God. Years ago, I was talking to a man who was having some health issues, and I told him he needed to go to the doctor. And he said, well, Pastor, I, if I die, I die. I'm not afraid of dying. And besides, you're talking about the material world. I'm concerned about the spiritual world. And I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. It's not a question about are you afraid of death or not. It's a stewardship issue. God has given to you that body. You are accountable to him for that body. You are responsible to him, and you need to take care of your body. You need to go to the doctor. You see, he was trying to, to put in different categories. God doesn't allow us to do that. Every decision you make is a spiritual decision. So what I do with my money, what I do with my stuff, is not a personal decision. It is a spiritual decision because everything belongs to God. He's loaned it to me. I'm going to be accountable to him. So financially, it's not my decision. Again, this is not just talking about tithing. It's more than that. Yeah, tithe is 10% of what God gives to you. I'm talking about even the 90% that you keep. You still give an account to God for that. So with that in mind, I want you to remember that the key to all this is who do you trust? If you really trust God, this is no problem. If you really trust the power and the love of God, those four principles don't bother you. But if you don't trust God, it bothers you. 
And so with that in mind, I want to look at what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. Now, you have to understand about this book. In 1 and 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing a, a letter to a church that has a lot of problems. And by the way, if you ever belong to a church with a lot of problems, just read 1 and 2 Corinthians and you will feel better about your church. This is the most dysfunctional church you can imagine. I mean, just reading the letter, Paul is addressing some of their issues. For example, sexual immorality, including incest. They had an issue of members suing one another. They had leadership issues. They had leadership squabble. They had major factions, depending on who's your favorite Bible teacher. They had theological problems on the Lord's Supper. They had theological problems about speaking in tongues and other issues. And Paul is writing to them. And in this book, he spends two chapters on money. Now, think about that. With all these, dis- all these issues they're facing, with all these problems they're facing, Paul is writing this letter and says, oh, by the way, let me spend two entire chapters talking about money. Who's in your wallet? Now, why would Paul do that? Because in the economy of God, Paul understands our finances are connected to our walk with God, and our finances are connected to our relationship with others. So that's why Paul is addressing this issue. And so in chapter 8, he spends the first few verses talking about, hey, there's a church in Jerusalem that needs help. They're a poor church, and we're taking up an offering. So Paul's going to, writing these letters to these different churches and say, hey, let's take up an offering so that we can send it to the church in Jerusalem. Then in chapter 5 through verse, uh, uh, verse 5 through verse 15 in chapter 8, Paul says, oh, by the way, the church in Macedonia who has less money than you, they took up more money than you. I, I love that. I mean, he, here's Paul encouraging them to give, and he makes it into a competition. He said, that, now they got less money than you. They're not as blessed as you, but they're giving more than you. You need to do better. And Paul is writing about giving. And Paul wants them to give sacrificially and generously. The Bible says a lot about giving. 2,100 times in the Bible, it talks about the word give. Now, you think love would be the most used word. It's not. It's only used 700 times. The word love is only used 700 times. The word give is 2,100 times. And the reason is simple. You, you can't truly love without giving. If you love, you're going to give. But you can give without loving. And so the Bible speaks about giving. Jesus talked about money. 16 of the 38 parables that Jesus gave to us dealt with money. The Bible talks about possessions. In fact, in the, in, the New, in the Gospels, one out of ten verses deal with money or possessions. The Bible spends 500 verses on prayer and 500 verses on faith, but 2,000 verses on money and possession. Why? Because it's all connected. And so Paul is writing to this church, and, and take your Bibles and let's look back at this passage in chapter 9, verse 6, as Paul gives us three lessons on stewardship. Three lessons on stewardship. The first lesson is this, the more you sow, the more you grow. The more you sow, the more you grow. Look what he says in verse 6. Now this I say to you, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Paul is saying as you sow, you're going to grow. And he gives to us so many principles here, principles you can apply to anything in life, not just finances, but anything. For example, he gives us the principle of intentionality. 
He, he says, you have a choice. Verse 6, I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Did you notice that Paul only gave two categories? There's not a third category. Paul did not give the, the Goldilocks approach to giving. Too little, too much, just right. <laughs> no, Paul says there's only two ways. When you give, you're either giving sparingly or you're giving bountifully. There's only two ways. And it's your choice. You choose how you're doing it. He says there are those who give sparingly. Now, that, that word sparingly, uh, we get the word stingy from it. That's what he means. It's the person who takes something from, from God and doesn't use it. Now, it may mean they don't spend it at all. They just hoard it. Or it may mean they spend it on themselves. But the idea, they're not giving it. Paul says, some sow sparingly. By, by the way, do you know why people do this? Do you know why people are stingy? Psychologists call it the scarcity uh, mindset, the scarcity mentality. It's the idea that you're not going to get any more. They believe God's blessing will run out. And, and, and so, they, now they disguise it. They won't say it that way. They'll, they'll say, well, I'm just being a good steward. I'm saving because God wants me to save. Do you remember the parable Jesus told in Matthew chapter 25? A man was going on a trip. He brings three of his servants. He gives one servant five talents, which is money. He gives another servant two talents, which is money. He gives another servant one talent, which is money. He goes away. He comes back and, go, and has an account. The man with five talents said, Master, you gave me five talents. I invested. I got, I got five more talents. Here it is. And the master said, well done, my good and faithful servant. The second guy comes up. He said, Master, you gave me two talents. I invested it. I got two more talents. Here's four talents. I give it back to you. He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. The same words, the exact same words he gives to, to praise the man. The third guy comes up, has a long speech. He says, Master, I knew you. I love that. I know who you are. And I was afraid. In other words, I don't trust you. And I went and I hid the talent because I didn't want to lose what you gave me. You remember what the master said? Jesus said in Matthew 25, 25, verse, verse 26, he said, you wicked, lazy servant. Those are powerful words. The word wicked is pantaros, which is the word for evil. Same word used in the Lord's Prayer. He's calling this man evil, just like Satan. The, the word lazy is slothful. Then in verse 30, he, he says, you are worthless. In the Greek language, that means a gap, a blank space. Uh, in Mississippi, they would say, you ain't good for nothing. These are the harshest words Jesus ever gave to anyone. Not because he did something, but because he didn't do something. This man was not an adulterer. He wasn't a thief. He wasn't a prostitute. He wasn't a murderer. He simply didn't give what God had given to him. He was so afraid of losing it's the scarcity mentality. Have you ever, you're almost at the end of your toothpaste. And you know it's going to be a couple of days where you can get to the store. And you squeeze just that tiny amount. You've got to figure it out. What's the least amount I can put on the toothbrush to brush my teeth without wasting it? And you're, and the next day, or next later that day, you're just very, very, very careful. Because you don't have any more toothpaste. And the next day, you just... Then you get some new toothpaste. 
You got toothpaste in the sink, but you don't care. Why? You got more toothpaste. People who are stingy, they think nothing else is going to come back. That is the mindset. And Paul is saying, if you give sparingly, you reap sparingly. He said, then there are those who sow bountifully. That word bountifully means to, to give to the point of blessing. You give to the point of blessing others. Paul says, it's, how you're, you know, it's who you are. It's individual. You make the decision. Secondly, he said, there's the principle of identity. You reap what you sow. You identify what you're going to be giving, and you'll get it back. I mean, it's very simple. What you sow, you get back. And Paul is using the, the image of a farmer. A farmer plants wheat. He doesn't say, I hope those oranges come up. I mean, he plants corn. He says, I can't wait for those strawberries. No, he knows exactly what he's going to get because that's what he is sowing. And, and Paul says, what you sow, you will receive back. Now, again, this is not just about money. If you sow bad health habits, you're going to have bad health. You sow criticism, you're going to be criticized. Uh, you, you sow dishonesty, you're going to be cheated. But if you sow the, spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, you're going to receive joy, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Paul says it's the principle of identity. What you give, you're going to receive back. Then he gives us the principle of increase. And that simply says that you reap more than you sow. It's just a principle. You know, if a farmer plants an apple seed, he expects more than one apple. If he plants 50 pounds of grain, he expects more than 50 pounds of grain. It's the principle of increase. What you give, what you sow, you'll receive more. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago about a, a multi-million, multi-millionaire tech man who, who went to a hotel in, in California. He went up to the valet. He, he gave him thousands of dollars and said, go buy me some gold coins. And so the man went and bought some gold coins and brought it back to the man. He went to the Pacific Ocean, and he started throwing these coins into the ocean, trying to skip these $1,000 gold coins across the ocean. And by the way, I think that's when people took up snorkeling. <laughs> but anyway, he was throwing these coins. Well, someone found out about it, gave it, told the reporter. The reporter said, why are you doing this? He said, well, just for fun. The article said about a year later, he was broke. What a surprise. Same article talked about Robert Reed, Ronald Reed. Ronald Reed was a, a pump gas. He was a janitor in Brattleboro, Vermont. 2014, he died at age 91. In his estate, he gave away to charities. He left $6 million. You say, wait a minute, how, how could someone pumping gas and being a janitor have $6 million? Well, because in his life, he put away money. He, he invested in the stock market. He gave pennies, sometimes just pennies every month. He had no financial background. He had no formal training, no college education, no training at all, no connection to anybody important. He just gave money to the stock market. And he had the increase. The article went on to say that this principle that Paul's talking about, they said, when you invest, you'll always receive more. If you invest, you'll receive more. People forget that Warren Buffett made 95% of his money after the age of 65. You see, we have to understand the principle of identity. Secondly, fourthly, there's the principle of interval. It says you reap only after you sow. Here's the part a lot of people miss. A lot of Christians say, Lord, you give me on the front end, I'll give it back to you. You don't find that in Scripture. God says, you give first. And at my timetable, I give back. What you sow, you will reap. 
but later. God will always promise that oh, he will bless us on his timetable. Now, I've told this story many times before. We, we've been married many years, and early in our marriage, we struggled financially. I was at school. I was a pastor in a small country church in Mississippi. And at least five times in our marriage, five times, I know that we were flat broke. We had no money to our name. Now, it just lasted maybe for a week or two, to, or a few days, but we had no money. But I remember one time we uh, tithed. It was, came to the point we tithed, and we had a bill due that week. And we decided it was very simple. We're going to tithe first, and God, we don't know how you're going to give us the money for this. We're going to trust you. And we tithe. That end of the week, money came in the mail. We had not asked anybody for anything. Money came, and it was the amount that we needed to pay the bill. What happened? It's called the principle of the interval. You know, you, you, you sow, and God on his timetable. Did he give me the money on the front end? Absolutely not. Now, please, please, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not saying you give $100, and God's going to give you $10,000 in return. He might do it. He's never done it for me, okay? I'm just saying. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about get-rich-quick scheme here. I'm talking about a spiritual condition that you say, God, I'm going to sow, and I will reap on your timetable. Second lesson. The more you love, the more you sow. The more you love, the more you sow. Look at verse 7. Paul says, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I love what Paul says here. He says, by the way, this giving is individual. He says, each one. He's not talking about the church as a whole. He said, every single person, you've got to make up your mind what you're going to give. And then he says it again. Each person, just as he purposed in his heart. Remember what I said last week? Stewardship is all about planning. You're not a steward by accident. You got a plan. That word means predetermined. You have predetermined what you're going to give. Each one must do just as he purposed in his heart. In his heart. In his heart. He said, That's the key. You give where your love is. It's based on a heart. And the more you love, the more you're going to give. And then Paul says, Not grudgingly or under compulsion. That, that word uh, grudgingly in Greek is lupe. It means being heavy or sorrowful. And the word compulsion means being stressed about something. Paul is saying, I don't want you to be stressed about giving. I I don't want you to feel uh, guilty about giving. I want you to give because of your love. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. And so, yeah, you may be a a tearful giver and you hate giving. Or you may be a fearful giver because you're afraid what God might do to you. But the Bible says we are to be a cheerful giver. That we, because of our love, that word means hilarious. It means we have so much joy, we want to give to God. And Paul reminds us God loves a cheerful giver. The more you love, the more you sow. And finally, the more you sow, the more God works flow. The more you sow, the more God works flow. It's a principle. That's what Paul says from verse 12 and following. He said, as you give, the work of God is being done. As you give, the work of God. He says, God work flows through your giving by supplying their needs what it says in verse verse 12 for the ministry of this service he said not only is that happening other things are happening when you give you make a difference for the kingdom of god when you sow you're making a difference for the kingdom of god he said not only that it awakens your gratitude that's what he says in verse 11 verse 12 you become thankful it's a it's a principle when you start giving you become more interested in the things of god and when you become more interested in the things of god you become more grateful to god Why? Because it is God who supplies our needs. Verse 10, he supplies the seed to the sower. You're giving only what God has already given to you. 
and you're thankful for it. Verse 14, he said, not only the work of growth, it, the, the people are praying for you. He said, they're praying for you because you are giving. This morning, I know this. There are churches in Cuba praying for you. I know that. There's a church in Brazil praying for you this morning. There's a church in Arizona, in Phoenix, Arizona, I know, is praying for you this morning. There's a church in, in Chicago and in New Orleans that are praying for you today. There are churches in Mayfield praying for you. Why? Because you gave. And Paul is saying, as you give, as you sow, more work flows. One of the most amazing men of history was John Wesley. John Wesley was the founder of the Methodists. His life is amazing. He traveled widely. He, he generally rode on horseback, obviously, in that time period. He preached two to three times a day without internet. It's hard to believe. They estimated he rode 250,000 miles. He preached more than 40,000 sermons in his lifetime. You look at his life, he formed societies. He started the Methodist church. He opened chapels. He mentored pastors. He administered charities. He helped the sick. He worked with the mentally ill in a time that no one cared about the mentally ill. And people look at his life and they say, how could he have done all this? I mean, what he's doing is almost superhuman. I think I know the answer to that. People do not realize that John Wesley made a lot of money from his preaching. He sold his sermons. In fact, he was one of England's wealthiest men. John Wesley's net worth in his lifetime, they calculated at $50 million. Now, in an age, in that time period, you could live comfortably on 30 pounds. He made 1,400 pounds, about $300,000 a year. He made $300,000 a year. So what did he do with this money? He lived on 2% of it. He dedicated his life that he would give away 98% of his money and live on the 2%. He kept a journal of all the money he, he spent, so we know that's exactly how much he lived. He lived on 30 pounds, 2%, and God blessed him. In one of his famous sermons, he talked about money. He said, gain all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. Wesley was a cheerful giver. And as he sowed, God blessed him. And he kept giving it back. And God blessed him. And he kept giving it back. Not only the finances, but the energy and the passion and the spiritual power. God used him in a great way because John Wesley was a cheerful giver. And he knew God owned it all. And he was accounted, accountable for it. He understood who was in his wallet. It was Jesus. Who's in your wallet? Who's in your heart? My question this morning is very simple. Is Jesus in your life? Is Jesus really the Lord and Savior of your life? And by the way, you can find out, look at your giving. Does it reflect that? This morning, if you have never given your life to Christ, we ask you to give your life to Christ by admitting that you're a sinner, saying, God, I can't save myself. And I believe that Jesus died on that cross 2,000 years ago for my sins. He was buried on the third day he arose. 
And I confess, I give you everything. I'm holding nothing back. I bring everything to, to the cross. Will you do that this morning? For those of you online, if you would do that, just text the word today at 270-398-5005, and a minister will give you a call. If you're here this morning, we're going to be singing this a few seconds. Just come to the front, talk to me or one of the ministers, or, or go to the Connection Center after the end of the church and talk to one of the ministers. But today's the day you need to decide not only who's in your wallet, but who's in your heart. Will you stand and bow your heads? Father, we acknowledge that all things belong to you and everything we have is a gift. And Father, that means this moment, this opportunity right now comes from you. And we're accountable for it. We're accountable, Father, if we're going to give our life to you. We're accountable if we're going to walk away. We're accountable, Father, today if we're going to make the decision that we're going to become bountiful givers. That we're going to trust you in our giving. And we're accountable if we're going to say, no, I don't trust you, God. I don't believe you can take care of my needs. God, we're accountable for what takes place in the next few moments. And I pray, Father, that you'll speak to us with such clarity that, Father, we'll know it's your voice. And without hesitation, to give our life to you. Rather, giving our life in a personal way or recommitting our life or, Father, hearing the call to missions or ministry or, Father, maybe just hearing the call to, to, to do more in your kingdom at work or at school. Father, whatever it may be, let that decision be made today because we're accountable right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.